0: at loveisrael.org. That's one word, loveisrael.org. Now, here's Baruch with today's lesson.
1: We are called to be used by God. And that fact has great wisdom. No longer am I living my life, but my life, the scripture says, is hidden in Yeshua. And it's only when Messiah appears, then and only then, what my life truly has amounted to will be manifested. Now, this is a testimony. What Paul is sharing is a testimony of perspectiveness. We need to have a proper perspective in order to make the right decisions and carrying out God's will. And more than anything else, Paul is instructing Timothy in Timothy's call to be a leader, to, to oversee a congregation or perhaps a few congregations, that he influences these individuals, fellow believers, in a way that they will have a walk worthy of their call, worthy of Messiah's name being placed upon them. So with that said, take out your Bible and look with me to 1 Timothy and that final chapter, chapter 6. 1 Timothy and chapter 6. We began this chapter last week, and God willing, will conclude it this week. And hopefully next week, we'll begin 2 Timothy. And we're going to see in this last part of chapter 6, Insight, wisdom, instructions from Paul to Timothy so that he makes godly decisions and he serves in a God-honoring way. Ask yourself a question. Does that describe you? Are you someone that truly wants to honor God, not just with our lips, but also in action, in deeds, and in work? This is what Paul is instructing Timothy. Now, he ended up last week by warning Timothy, and he's going to continue doing just that. There is great danger in this world. And if we're not mindful of the instructions of God, we will oftentimes frequently fall prey to the schemes of the enemy. So Paul, as you recall last week, He spoke about two primary things. First of all, that the love of money, not money in and of itself, but loving money is the root of all evil. A very strong statement. And then he also warns sympathy about other desires or lusts that are contrary to our faith. So don't love money and don't desire the things that are connected to this world, we are called to be different. We are called to be a particular people set apart by the will of God. So let's begin. Look with me, First Timothy chapter 6, beginning in verse 11, where he says, but you, O man of God, Now, he's speaking to Timothy. That's why he says, O man of God. But what we're studying has great relevance for all believers, male and female alike. Once again, but you, O man of God, these things, what things? What I've mentioned, things that are related to desires that belong to the world rather than the kingdom of God. So he says, these things, these ungodly desires, this wrong perspective. He said, these things, and he commands flee. In other words, flee from these things. So the practical application is this. We have to be walking with discernment, seeing those things that are presented to us, those things that stand before us, and we need to make decisions. Do they belong to the things of the kingdom that we're supposed to pursue or are those things that we flee from? The enemy, he gets an upper hand over us when we do not flee from those things. So he says, flee these things and, and it's really a, a conjunction of, of contrast. He says, but in contrast." To these things, he says, you pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, and he calls us to have an endurance and a perseverance and a gentleness. Now, I want to focus in on this list of a few things, on the first and the last. First, he says, righteousness, pursue righteousness. And the only way that we can understand what is righteous is by utilizing the commandments of God. I've said this so frequently, the commandments of God, they are not instruments of salvation. They are not a tool for making us righteous, but they define, even in our times, they still define what is righteous and therefore what is unrighteous. So the Torah is an invaluable tool for us. It is precious. It has great significance to teach us what is righteousness. So he says, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, persevere, endure, meaning overcome the the things of this world. Don't allow yourself to be defeated by that which is ungodly. And then finally, he says, a word of, of gentleness. Some Bibles may translate it a meekness. Now, what's interesting is this. I can remember in seminary hearing a message about this word. The person who was, was sharing was a professor and he was sharing about how this—the reason why it's last in this passage—is because it's being emphasized, and this gentleness, this meekness, is emphasized as what's appropriate for God's people. Now, when he taught, he was seeing this in contrast to uh, warfare. This teacher was was very close, if not fully, but being close to being a pacifist, never seeing conflict as something which is appropriate for a believer. He says, you know, be wrong rather than be in conflict with someone. But here's the problem. That was his mindset, but it wasn't according to the will of God. How can I be sure? We'll just move on to the next verse. Notice what he says here. He says, fight the good fight, of faith this word is a word for contending in fact many bibles translate in that way contend contend for the the fighting of faith it's the same word it's a military term so don't think that being gentle means that one is not not willing to go to battle for the faith now we need to see this term gentleness simply means giving a place for god to bring about the results not trying to to work out yourself what the results are being faithful to god in a quiet in a a controlled faithfulness that does not and this word gentleness it means not calling attention to oneself not putting your self at the forefront but it's a term of submissiveness but again there's no conflict there's no uh, coming together between these two things in an adverse way we can be gentle meek but also we are called to fight the good fight of faith by the way that word for fighting first is a verb Then when it says the good fight, it's a noun, but the same word is being used twice in this passage. So contend, you contend for the good contending, the good fight of our faith, doing what? Taking hold of eternal life. Now we need to see eternal life in two ways. First of all, there's the full expression of eternal life, which is a kingdom expression. But there's also a foretaste now, and this is what he's referring to, that we live in light of kingdom truth. We take hold of an eternal life perspective now in this world, knowing that we have eternity, that we have the blessings and promises of God. That's where we're heading for. And in light of that, It is going to empower us. It is going to give us illumination insight for making decisions in this world. So again, taking hold, this is a command, you take a hold of eternal life for which also you have been called. This is our call to demonstrate kingdom truth. So when it says contend or fight the good fight of our faith, It implies demonstrating those things, those laws, those principles of the kingdom now in this world. That is what contending is all about. For which also you have been called and have confessed the good confession before many witnesses. Now, these words for witnesses can also be martyrs, those who have gone before you and have been put to death before, before others because of their commitment to God. So fight the good fight. Be willing to lay down your life for the things that relate to kingdom truth. Now look, if you would, to verse, verse 13. Here he's commanding. Many Bibles will say, I charge you, but it's a term of commanding. So he says, I charge you before the God. And what is God up to? It's in the present. It's a participle. So we see something that describes what God is presently doing. And what is he doing? He is making life. Now, why is God defined in this phrase, in this phrase, in this way? As one who is making life? Well, the answer is very simple. It is because when we are taking hold of kingdom truth, displaying it, demonstrating it in our life, then God responds by making life, meaning making our lives what they're called to be, giving us direction, insight, helping us make decisions, meaning When he makes life, he's giving us discernment. So all of these things God is doing. Once more, verse 13, I charge you before the God who is making life, or we could say making life, giving life, is the implication to all things. God is the one who is creator God giving life, We see that he was able to do it in this creation, this world, this universe that we're living in. And he can also do it in the kingdom that's coming, the age that is on the horizon. He says, also, Messiah Yeshua. And what did he do? Well, the one who had testified before Pontius Pilate a good testimony. Now, here before Pontius Pilate, we see something we see Messiah. He didn't panic. He didn't beg for his physical life because he knew something. There is kingdom life, which is far greater. Messiah did not ever compromise before Pontius Pilate. He spoke in a way that Pontius Pilate didn't understand. Why? He wasn't committed to truth and Pontius Pilate was all committed to the things of this world. And here's the principle. When I am committed to the things of this world, it causes kingdom truth to be, to be distorted, to be blurred. I can't perceive it. Likewise, when you are committed to kingdom truth, the things of the kingdom, then it's going to give you a clarity to what's going on in this world. And that's why fellow believers that are committed to the kingdom, will see things so similarly, they will have that same guidance, that same illumination of the Holy Spirit. Now he writes, look now to verse verse 14. To keep, to keep, you keep the commandment without any spot, any type of blemish, and in a way that the next word is, without reproach meaning this that we live in such a way we we submit to that commandment what commandment to be conformed to the character of the kingdom now we know the kingdom is a kingdom of righteousness he says seek first the kingdom and its righteousness righteousness is expressed by what i've already mentioned by the torah so when he says here look again You keep the commandment. He's speaking about this commandment of being charged for kingdom purposes, a kingdom character, the whole verse, verse 14. You keep the commandment without spot and in an unreproachable way until until the manifestation of our Lord, Messiah Yeshua. Now, why does he bring in this concept, the manifestation of Messiah and a course for believers? We're talking about that blessed hope when Messiah gathers us up, takes us away from this world prior to his wrath being poured out. Because we, up until that moment of the rapture, we are called to be servants. At the time of that blessed hope, the rapture, we are going to be transformed. And then what our life really consisted of, who we really are, remember I said, up until that manifestation that he spoke of, our lives are hidden. People don't see who we truly are. They don't see what we possess, what we will receive. They don't know this. In our humble, our gentle conduct, they don't see it for reality but when messiah manifests himself then all is going to change so a wonderful promise unto the manifestation of our lord not just of messiah yeshua but our lord messiah yeshua which at his times now it's literally the word one's own times it's in the plural, and it's speaking about his time. When he comes to bring a conclusion to this world, at that season, at that proper time, he will show forth something. And he is go- going to show forth, and who is he? Well, keep reading. It says here, the blessed and the only sovereign, the king, of of the ones serving as kings and the Lord of the ones serving as Lord. Now we normally say the king of kings, the Lord of lords, but here we have a different expression. It's not the king of kings, but the kings of the ones who are behaving as kings, meaning are in that position. He's over them. He's greater than them. And likewise, the ones who are lording over, ruling over those who are enslaving others, he is the true Lord of Lords. The ones who are manifesting this, this power, this authority, he's truly over them. For he is the one, the only one that has, notice this, immortality, meaning he doesn't die. He has nothing connected to him concerning death. Now, this is Messiah in his glorified form. We need to understand something. Paul is revealing three things. First of all, Messiah. He always existed. There was never a time that he did not exist. And we see that although Equality with God was not something that that he grasped after because he had it. But he humbled himself, taking upon human flesh. Even though he never sinned, therefore he would never die. But because your sins and my sins, the sins of humanity, were placed upon him. That's what brought about his death, a very important, often overlooked, theological term see it was not the cross that killed him did he die on a cross yes he did but what brought about his death was not a physical death but it was because sin and we always need to remember this relationship biblically between sin and death he died because our sins were placed upon him that's which brought about his death. So we read here that he, and he's in this condition now, when he returns, he will be in that that perfectly restored state where it says that he alone has immortality. There's nothing connected to him that's related to death. He is also the one who dwells in light, and notice it says this light that he dwells in in the natural. It is unable for one to approach. We have a term where it says dwelling in this, this unapproachable, unaccessible, inaccessible light, which no man is able to, to approach and it says here, no man, let's get it right at the end of verse 16, says, which no one, no man has seen and no one is able to see. So in that natural state, the old man cannot behold God. It's only the new man having been redeemed that will be able to do that. Again, he says here, he is the Only one, the only God who has immortality for himself and he can present it, bestow upon us immortality. The one who dwells in this inexpressible, this unassessable light, what we cannot approach in the flesh that no one, no man has ever seen and unable to, to see to whom there is honor and power forever, amen. Now, we had a call to worship, but let me share with you that that I was debating and praying about just this last phrase of verse 17, where it says, to him is honor and power forever, amen. A great statement that prepares us to worship him. Verse 17, now having made that benediction, he's going to wrap up things and he wants us to remember something. We're called to have that kingdom mindset and that kingdom mindset is in opposition to the things of this world. That's why he says, look at verse 17. To the rich ones in this present age, he says, I command not to be, and this is a word for thinking in a high manner, not to be high-minded, not to, and it's a an idiom for having pride. So he says, those who are rich ones in this world, this present world, meaning it's going to give away. It's now, but it won't be eternal. This present world, those who are wealthy, he says, I, I charge you, I command you not to be high minded nor to, to have hope, to be hoping upon this, this wealth, this, these rich things. Why? He says these things are, are uncertain. So this wealth, these, these possessions, there's nothing certain about them they do not have anything that is lasting that endures they 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 present they they have that which is uncertain but rather you have hope not in these uncertain riches but rather in the living god the one who provides to us in a generous way, all things for enjoyment. Now I want to pause for a moment because the words here in the original language are are most significant. He speaks here about God. Look again. He says, the God, you're supposed to have hope in him, not in (laughs) uncertain riches, but in the living God who provides to us in a generous. Now it's the same word for being rich or wealthy in a abundant, in a a rich manner. He says, all things, why? For our enjoyment. God gives. He likes his people to be full of joy. God is a blessed God. He gives abundantly. And in light of that, what are we called to do? That that bestowing, his bestowing upon us these things for our enjoyment should lead us, look at verse 18, to work good works. Now, it's the word, it's two words actually. It's a commandment in a verbal form, which means to work out that which is good. So to produce good things in order that that one is wealthy, rich in good works. And not just that he's rich in good works, but these things he says, to give in abundance and to share these. So what God does, he gives him for our enjoyment. And the next thing he says is that you be faithful to do good works, in order that you are able to share and give abundantly of these things that he provides. Why? Now, here's the principle. Now, if you learn this, your eternity is going to be very, very different. And the question is this, do we want a really different eternity? How can I have a wonderful kingdom experience? Well, he tells us, look again at verse 19. He says, having treasured up for oneself. So he says, treasure up, we can understand and make it personal, for yourself. A good foundation for the future. Now, this term for future is really that which is coming. And so frequently, this word in the Greek language is used for this coming, this future kingdom. So what should we do? Well, he says, you know, God gives us many things generously in abundance in a wealthy manner for our enjoyment. We receive that and we express our thanksgiving for what God gives to us by doing good deeds, being rich, being being wealthy in good works so that we can take. Those things of this world, these blessings, and that we can give them generously to others, that we be sharing them in order that in doing so, what is the outcome for us when we share generously, when we take of the things of this world and give it to others? What's the outcome? Look at verse 19. Treasuring up for oneself a good foundation for the future, in order to receive. Now, we have a difference. In the Texas Receptus, it simply says, in order to take hold of eternal life, meaning the things of eternal life, the rewards, the promises, the blessing. Now, don't get confused about what he's saying. He is not saying that these good works, this giving away, material things, is a a means to eternal life. He's not saying it about entering into eternal life. He's talking to people that have eternal life. But here he's speaking about a different aspect of eternal life, and these are the promises, the blessings. Think of it this way, the rewards. So, one, by faith through the grace of God, not of any works whatsoever, they will be an inhabitant a resident of the kingdom. But that says nothing concerning their kingdom experience. A foolish thing, I said this not too long ago at our conference, a foolish mindset is this. As long as I'm in the kingdom of God and I have eternal life, that's all that matters to me. A true believer doesn't say that. A true believer wants to have an abundance in that kingdom of God an abundance of rewards for two reasons one of which this is going to relate to our appreciation our thanksgiving to messiah it is going to demonstrate what our faith in messiah amounted to so we're not going to want to be in the kingdom of god and, and have no rewards no no uh uh being not a recipient of his promises his faithful rewards, we're going to want them. And that's what he's talking about here. So he says, treasuring up for for oneself a good foundation for the future in order to take hold of eternal life. Now, some say, in fact, if you're looking at a modern translation, instead of simply saying eternal life, it will take a word eternal life out and say, for that which is truly life. Now, I don't mind the the interpretation for this is truly life, but it literally says in the best manuscripts, eternal life. And as I've said, when we hear that term eternal life, what should come into our mind is kingdom life. So that which is truly what, what eternal life, that kingdom call, what it truly should produce. Verse 20. He says, Oh, Timothy, he says that which has been deposited to you. Now that's the implication says simply that which is deposited, meaning given to you, provided to you. He says, keep this call, this giftedness, all these things which, which Timothy has his call upon his life. God's provision, the insight that Paul is sharing from from heaven to to Timothy in this epistle. He says, All these things guard, keep. And then he says, Turn away, remove yourselves from what? He says, uh, Worthless babble and also opposing arguments, which are false knowledge. They think that is knowledge, but is really false. Now I want to emphasize this. He says, don't waste your time in, in profitless babbling. Now, what is that? I cannot tell you the, the high percent of questions that I receive. And people will say, I know this is not found in the scripture, but what do you think about this? And they'll deal with some issue that the bible refers to but the bible doesn't develop the word of god doesn't answer they want answer to questions that the bible does not answer this is this vain babbling if the scripture doesn't speak to it in clear terms we don't need to speak to it it's just like i gave a message not too long ago about the two witnesses And everyone wants to know, who do you think the two witnesses are? Are are they revealed who they are? No. But who do you think? It doesn't matter. If God did not think it was proper to tell us who they are, then we need not know. They may very well be two witnesses that we don't know them. They have not maybe even been born yet, but we don't know their names. So it's not important. So he says here, this vain babbling this babbling that's profitless he says stay away from it also those argument opposing arguments to to the scripture he says they may come with with great intelligence but they are a false knowledge he says which look now to our last verse verse 21 which certain ones they are proclaiming they are, are are speaking concerning the faith, but concerning the faith, the fact that they are proclaiming them tells us that they have erred, that they have turned aside. In other words, he says this, this vain babbling, this false knowledge, these things that are not rooted in scripture, he says, turn away from them. But what happens is this. Those people asking those questions, speaking in this way, they are the ones that turn away from the faith. So you're either turning to vanity or you're turning to faith. When you turn to faith, you turn away from this vain babbling and this false knowledge. But when you turn away from faith, you embrace such foolish speech and false knowledge finally he says the grace meaning the grace of god this specific grace the grace be with you and then he says amen well this first epistle lays a strong foundation for one walking in faith being rich in good deeds having a testimony that is pleasing to god And my hope is this, that through studying this first epistle, that we will grow in faithfulness, that we will grow more abundant in good deeds, that we will be faithful to the call that God has placed upon each believer, us individually, that we might do that individual call in order to bring glory and honor and praise and thanksgiving to our Lord and Savior, Messiah Yeshua. Well, with that, I'll close until next week when we begin 2 Timothy and chapter 1. Until that time, shalom.
0: Well, we hope you will benefit from today's message and share it with others. Please plan to join us each week at this time and on this channel for our broadcast of loveisrael.org. Again, to find out more about us, please visit our website, loveisrael.org.